What role do colleges and universities play in building an anti-racist future? This podcast series, Building the Anti-Racist College and University, seeks to begin examining this question. Through interviews with administrators, faculty, researchers, policy experts, historians, and students, each episode in this series examines one important piece of beginning to conceptualize anti-racist colleges and universities of the present and future. This series was produced as part of a term project during fall 2020 for Higher Education Leadership 7372, Diversity and Culture in Higher Education at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas, United States. The foundation for this project was Ibram Kendi's 2019 text, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Each student in the course designed one episode seeking to unpack, question, problematize, or dissect a particular area related to building anti-racist colleges and universities. The series in no way is exhaustive, prescriptive, or capable of answering every question. But collectively, the series adds to an ongoing conversation in higher education about anti-racist futures. We hope it inspires dialogue, reflection, engagement, and action on colleges and universities in the United States and around the world. We hope it inspires ongoing work, research, activism, policy, local, regional, national, and international action. We hope it brings us one step closer to an anti-racist future in post-secondary education. This episode is, How Can the NCAA Become Anti-Racist? Um, one thing I noticed in your 2020 article on transformational leadership, mm-hmm. you, um, you, the issue of specific, specificity of language is kind of woven throughout that. And I thought that was really interesting because I mm-hmm. pay attention to language too and how that mm-hmm. frames issues and changes people's mm-hmm. minds about things. Yeah. And so I wanted to just explore that a little bit. You, you discussed the importance of re- in that article of replacing the term of color. Yes. Um, with terms that acknowledge unique challenges and the oppression yes. of specific groups. Yes. And I know that's kind of a political topic now, but mm-hmm. what, um, why is it important for an anti-racist organization to be very specific with language, like something like of color? Um, but specifically for black people, there's been an ideological war to secure and to protect our human dignity. And I argue that when you use of color, it's another way of saying that this group cannot be human in and of Mm -hmm. themselves. They have to be merged with other human groups to get any kind of recognition. Mm -hmm. When we look at the United States, it's it's almost a blatant disregard for how anti-Black racism essentially built this country. To, 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 To... to the 21st century and to say, okay, now let's just say of color. I think that's just very problematic. Two other issues with people of color. One, white is a color. When you were Uh out in a crayon box, white was a color in the crayon box too. So when white and of color, two 
things that are problematic. One, it's almost as if white is the standard that's human and of color is the inferior or some human. Like you normalize whiteness. Mm-hmm. One, white should be a part of the color. Right. How white is privileged and benefits within that, but it's a color too. The other thing with of color that 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 I'll 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 kind of end my 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 comment on it is is that there are over 50 I believe different African ethnic groups there are over like 30 Latino Latinx Lat- Latina ethnic groups there's uh I think over 20 or so Asian countries and if you include right. Southeast Asia and in other parts of Asia like there's vast heterogeneity and diversity among these groups, Chinese, Japanese, Taiwanese. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at people who are from India and who grew up in India, the, the country, and then those who maybe are Indian who grew up in Guyana, like South, mm-hmm. a very different, you know, you got Jamaicans, Haitians, Cubans, Dominicans. And when you just say of color, you're really mapping on a lot of unique ethnic and nationality groups that have distinct experiences. Once again, there's some intersection, but this gets into me back to the humanity piece is that right. when you merge them, that is a part of the dehumanization. You've got to go back and study how were these countries even created? How were these nation states created? Like how were certain groups included and excluded? And like, that's important. That's a part of people's identity. But when you say of color, it kind of makes it sound like, all Black, Asian, and um, uh, Latinx people or people Hispanic and Indigenous, all of us face the same problems and agree right. all the same things. And that's not true at all. Like for those reasons, I just think if we can be specific, that is a reflection of honoring the humanity, the distinctive cultural uh, heritages um, of these different groups. And it is a way of disrupting uh, problematic whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think we need. We, we don't need to keep talking about whiteness like it's this elusive thing. Like I said in my uh, Black Lives Matter Day speech last week, mm-hmm. is and was within our human capacity to create and reproduce racism. And it is in our capacity to change it and undo mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Like racism isn't something that is been around since the beginning of time. Now there've been cultural differences and but the way we talk about white, black, like we're all human beings. There have been several studies done that say there are more genetic similarities between right. groups who have right. different melanin than mm-hmm. with That means clearly that we have created these racial groups. We can talk about how uh, white racism, because I don't use the term white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue that anything supreme would be viewed as close to a de- divinity or a deity. Uh, right. But talk about the things that have been done under the banner of that. That's the exact opposite of supremacy. So mm-hmm. we call it that. I'm not going to, if I'm the one being raped, lynched, and killed, this person isn't supreme to me. They're evil. They're racist. Mm-hmm. They're oppressive. Like they're not supreme. Right. So I'm not going to adopt that language to agree with what they're saying it is. No, it's not that at all. So I'm actually going to call it white racism or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. this may be. Um, if we acknowledge that that white racism impacts more than black people, that's important. But we also have to understand it distinctly impacts black people in a particular way. We could look at the wage gap. I mean, the wealth gap, we right. can look at health disparities. We could look at mass incarceration. We could look at sports, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. The idea that you've got a multi-billion dollar sport industry where a majority of the universities, athletic departments, 
the athletic apparel companies and the actual franchises themselves and leagues are owned by white people. Mm-hmm. It's not people of color largely in these on these teams, right? Like, I mean, there is right. it's largely black people, mm-hmm. human beings, because we always like to say black bodies, which I always I don't like that because it's like they're not bodies; they're right. in those bodies. Like they're not right. Just, right. <laughs> they're humans with minds, with emotions, feelings, with cultural histories, with memory. It's not just a body; it's a person. So I have another question. I probably won't be able to find it right now. I'll have to wait on it. But I had a question on policy. But I did want to ask you, too, um, based on the language, uh, student athlete, of course, NCAA uses that term. And Mm -hmm. um, but I really liked in your 2018 article about um, comparative study of black and scholar athletes at um, HBCUs and then Mm -hmm. HWU. Um, But I like that term that you use, scholar athlete. Yeah. so how, what are the different connotations associated with each term? So when, when, I, when I use the term scholar athlete, it's specifically as it relates to Black scholar athletes, is to really demystify the dumb jock stereotype. Okay, yeah. You hear black student athlete, the assumption is, oh, the ones who don't graduate, the ones who don't major in engineering, science, or the quote-unquote hard majors, And in my research, I really wanted to turn that stereotype on its head and say, no, these are scholar athletes who are Black, right? They're Black and scholar athletes. This of the term student athlete was created by Walter Byers, the former head of the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And he created the term because the NCAA and the institutions were being sued for workers' compensation. There were Mm -hmm. players who were experiencing life-threatening, severe injuries, And in order for the schools to uh, not be liable for workers' conversation, they had to create a term that made it seem like the students were participating in athletics as uh, extracurricular activity, almost akin to like a student organization. But it is, right? So um, when you've got realities like the head coach of Alabama who makes 14 times more, earns 14 times more than the University of Alabama president, I um, mm-hmm. think that we need to be honest about whether the individuals who are the laborers who are generating that wealth, if they're student athletes, is that the best term to describe what they're doing? Right. Um, so now it doesn't mean that they're not qualified students, um, but what it means is that we need to be specific about what we're talking about. I would argue Division Three, where there's no athletic scholarships and a lot of the competition is regional and the coaches don't make more than anybody else on campus at most mm-hmm. of the- that would student athlete sounds a little more appropriate. Yeah. But at the division one power five level in the sports that are generating billions of dollars, um, it's very much a, a professional farm system. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to be honest about that. And I think they need to be classified as workers. I think they should have, they should form a union. Um, they should be able to negotiate and leverage the conditions in which they work under athletic talent that feeds the NFL or the MNFL, as I say, because if we're going to call it NBA, we need to say that it's the MNBA and the MNFL. Um, if it's, if we're going to be gender specific, um, we shouldn't just do it when it's women's sports. So I try to get my students back to the language piece to problematize, well, why do we not have male distinctions if it's the sport? 
uh, in college they do, but in the pros they don't. I think the pros should be the same. If you're going to be exclusive to men, you should call the sport that then as well. Now you've mentioned about um, the coaches making so much money versus um, most of them not being black, right. but obviously they're black males in um, football, division one football and basketball are very overrepresented, mm -hmm. but will that kind of diversity, representational or compositional diversity make the overall system anti-racist or anti-sexist? It depends. It depends on okay. what type of black coaches they hire. If they hire black coaches who are very much about holistic development of college athletes, black coaches who are uh, openly challenging the system and saying, hey, these things are wrong. Um, yeah, I think it could change it. But I think they could also hire black coaches who do the exact same things that these white coaches are doing. Mm. Point of the matter right. is just because you put somebody who is black in a position, it's about mm -hmm. the and I know a lot of people right. outside academia don't like to talk about that because it's harder to address and fix. Like we like to simplify things. That's why we say of color, because we don't really want to talk mm -hmm. about complexity yeah. and the problems of racism as it affects distinct groups. So uh, representation is fine. It's about the system. Like what okay. is the system doing to these young, uh, these uh, players? Um, is the system providing them with more rights, more health benefits, more equitable compensation, more holistic development support, study abroad, internships, post-athletic career, uh, disengagement, trauma support, mental health supports, career. So for me, it's not mm -hmm. so about the melanin or the race of the person in the position. From a symbolic standpoint, that can mean something. But if the person in the position, regardless of their race, um, is perpetuating a system of oppression, it's still going to have negative outcomes uh, on certain groups. So I think representation is important. Mm -hmm. Representation in alignment with core values centered on equity, social justice, uh, and inclusion is the ultimate um, proverbial promised land, if you will. Yeah, and that kind of brings me to um, your, you had an article in two, published in 2018, and you talk about the challenges that Black uh, scholar athletes face um, in HBCUs versus HW. Uh, you. And you talked about the academic neglect, athletic identity foreclosure, feelings of ex exploitation. And I was really interested then when you, you, I saw the article that you did that looked at more holistic uh, mm -hmm. viewpoint. And so mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about, about that? You've already mentioned a little bit, but how does that make a difference? Yeah, I mean, it makes a difference in the sense that a part of the conversation, so there's a moral aspect of this conversation, and then there's like an economic aspect of the conversation. And the economic argument against paying college athletes equitable wages is that they're gaining an education. <laughs> These athletes have to actually work and labor for whatever they're getting. And right. I would argue that the institutions aren't even providing them with what they say they're providing them. Mm -hmm. You know, most of these institutions, there are certain majors that these college athletes can't pursue because classes are offered during practice time or whatever. And, you know, so they have to change their major. So um, so for me, the holistic development standpoint, that comes into what I feel like any just and moral society should invest in all of their uh, citizens and members holistically. I think all of us as a human race would be better when everybody holistically is doing better. We could have other ways of human relations that aren't grounded in exploitation 
and human hierarchies. So for me, the holistic development is to me what the core part of what education should be about. And I would argue the holistic development is in place for certain groups, do internships, study abroad, uh, mm-hmm. get, you know, explore different things, develop lead. Like, um, but talk about a lot of college athletes, particularly at certain schools, um, they don't have that opportunity. And I think the nature and experiences, the benefits and consequences derived from sport are very context specific. If you had a coach who used profanity a lot, who demeaned you a lot, who didn't understand work-life balance, I would argue that your experience isn't as good as if you had a coach who looked at sport as a tool for holistic development, mm-hmm. did not use curse words, who right. respect. So it, it depends on that. that. When I said it depends earlier, I wasn't trying yeah. to cavalier or cliche, no, but it, it yeah. depends um, uh, how you do it. Um, so for me, holistic development has to be at the center. Now, holistic development does not negate the economic exploitation. What are what are some specific um, strategies did you find were incorporated when you did the study of at the Division One HWI institution um, to on the holistic development of um, black scholar athletes? Uh, One thing that we did was we connected them with same race, same gender alumni who were athletes and non-athletes. So we were able to put in front of them people in different professions, and they were able to build mentorship relationships with those individuals. So it doesn't always it doesn't have to be centered on athletics. For many of them, they're not going to go pro. So they're Mm -hmm. a non-athlete very soon. Right. (laughs) lifetime worth of athletic identity being pumped into them. And then it's all going to come to an abrupt end. And that's why so many of us experience the identity crisis. Mm-hmm. So I think the intentionality of connecting them with individuals in different fields, collaborative uh, programs with student organizations on campus. So we had a race, sport and activism panel. Uh, mm-hmm. We talked about um, uh, voting. We talked about police brutality so essentially integrating them into the campus community. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we had clinicians and mental health professionals from off campus who had culturally relevant training and backgrounds to help them identify what they're going through. We allowed them to uh, be leaders of the meetings. They got to determine mm-hmm. the topics they wanted to discuss. And you know, one of the activities we'd always do was when they walked in the room, they had to say 10 things about themselves, how they feel, who they are, what's going on, and they could not refer to their sport. Mm. So from a cognitive standpoint, right. to explore and think about who am I other than this uniform that I wear? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we helped them. Uh, several of them actually went to graduate school. We talked to them about mm-hmm. graduate school. The process mm-hmm. didn't think that they would even be eligible for graduate school. Um, it's because nobody ever sat down to talk to them about it. Yeah. Talking yeah. about graduate assistantships, and several of them, I'm happy to say, are pursuing their PhD. Um, so it's all about connecting them with supports, resources that affirm their holistic identity, not just their athletic identity. We had financial literacy lessons. So it's really just the whole, I mean, the way I try to frame it is that a lot of what we were providing to these uh, young men and women, it was no different than what some elite fraternities and sororities provide to their children, um, mm-hmm. wealthy families. And like, for like, it's, it's no different. It just sounds so foreign to do it for this group because we don't value them in that way. Um, mm. I 
think once again, from a cognitive standpoint, if we can use language to affirm their holistic nature, right? They put their their jersey on, they'll be able to say, "Well, this mm-hmm. is a part of who I am. It's not all of who I am." What do you provide to any other group on your campus that you would quote unquote define as being successful? Whether it be the ones who graduated at the highest rates, the valedictorian, that what do you provide to those groups? Mm-hmm. The question is, do you provide similar services? to the black college athletes. And most of them would say no. Right. So for you, I would say, start off doing it at the micro level. Okay. Uh, have conversations with the student, the college athletes, have conversations with the athletic staff and tell them that, hey, is there a way that we can communicate and collaborate? And you got to go back to doing it more on the grassroots level. Is that, hey, I'm going to be intentional about talking to college athletes, telling them about opportunities, finding out convenient times to meet with them. But I would also encourage you to kind of map out like what would, and there, there are schools that are doing this pretty well, programs and schools that are doing, um, you know, some very, really insightful uh, work yeah. that reflects uh, what, what do we call uh, the engagement and high impact practices. Um, is there anything that I did not ask about that you want to make sure that gets into the podcast on building an anti-racist university? You know, I always look at the three R's uh, as it pertains to anti-racism. I look at representation, okay. look at resources, and I look at results. And so one of the mm-hmm. things that Ibram X. Kendi talks about in his book is this idea of um, uh a racist policy is reflected in the outcomes, right? Like we oftentimes talk about racism in terms of intent, but mm-hmm. if we states, there've been a lot of law right. on the intent surface, right? not going to be racist, right? But then the question becomes, well, why do we keep having these racialized outcomes is because the racism is embedded even when the intent is not. Um, mm-hmm. It has to be more than just intent. There have to be policies that are race conscious. Um, and that right. means acknowledging that there are disparities. So one of the, the recommendations I put in one of the pieces was, what would it look like if schools were not able to um, participate in bowl games if their Black students, college athletes graduated at lower rates than the white mm-hmm. college athletes consistently? Like, you weren't allowed to participate. Now, granted, there'd be a lot of schools who would try to put them in easy majors. And mm-hmm. either way, it would allow a reevaluation of, well, how are we supporting our students through graduation? Because mm-hmm. now compared this metric of academic progress to athletic success. Because right now you could have zero black college athletes graduate and 70, 80% white college athletes graduate and win the right. national championship and everybody's happy. And I'm right, thinking, right. So how is that allowed? It's because you don't have race conscious policies. Um, mm-hmm. The holistic development things that we're talking about, why not make that mandatory and say that, hey, coaches' salaries, instead of paying X number of yeah. we're going to pay for these programs. This could be a, a, a gradual step that the coaches' salaries were tied to how they engage in holistic development so mm-hmm. their college athletes. You're basically getting rewarded for something you should be doing, but at least it shifts the reward from blatant exploitation to at least a level of concerted um, holistic development support. All I, I mean, the, the kind of the takeaway point is treat these college athletes as human beings. Mm-hmm. 
them as human beings that deserve fair, equitable treatment. Um, the students on your campus who you value the most and celebrate the most uh, in academic and the resources you provide, do the same for these college athletes. Um, mm -hmm. Don't treat them as a separate class. Like they're students too. I always tell my students, we all change the world every day through our actions and our inactions. And so mm -hmm. it becomes, you know, how are you going to change the world? You know, right. To, you know, just within your realm of influence, within your control, use your actions uh, to ignite as much positive change as possible. This podcast series was produced by Paul Eaton, Assistant Professor of Educational Leadership at Sam Houston State University, in conjunction with doctoral scholars enrolled in Higher Education Leadership 7372, Diversity and Culture in Higher Education, during fall 2020. You can contact Paul Eaton via email at pwe003 at shsu.edu. Content and perspectives presented in this series are intended for educational use. You can download a copy of episode transcripts and show notes at http colon backslash backslash bit.ly backslash anti-racist college. The views and opinions expressed on this program and series are those of the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Sam Houston State University. Thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Building the Anti-Racist College and University.